This is the Monday, August 13th, 2018 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes for a brand new episode every other Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old towns of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. In this episode, we welcome Fiona Davis back into our time machine, where she'll be painting a fresh story of art, mystery, intrigue, lies, and love, all while straddling two timelines of the ever-loving, ever-changing New York City of our theme song. Her book is The Masterpiece, a novel. If you enjoyed Fiona Davis's previous works, they are The Dollhouse, about the famed Barbizon Hotel for Women, and The Address, which stars the legendary Dakota apartment complex, you'll want to hop a train for this adventure. The masterpiece is set in the Grand Central Terminal of its 1920s heyday and 1970s decline. In those dark days half a century ago, Wrecking balls threatened to obliterate the structure. But, thanks to the efforts of Jackie Kennedy Onassis and other New Yorkers dedicated to preservation, the terminal not only avoided the fate of Penn Station across town, which had been raised in the decade prior, Grand Central soared. It was eventually restored into the jewel of Midtown we know today. I'm reminded of the words of William F. Buckley, who ran for mayor of the city and was, of course, a TV personality and founder of National Review magazine. He talked about standing athwart history, shouting stop. And that's what I picture these people doing, metaphorically standing there on the tracks, waving their arms, telling people that we couldn't let this amazing, unique piece of our history be lost. So if you live in the Big Apple or you're planning to come visit, The Masterpiece is really the perfect book to read first. It'll either reacquaint you with a building you thought you knew, or introduce it to you so that when you walk onto that concourse with everyone swirling around you, you'll be able to see it in a new light. And remember, you can enjoy my chat with Fiona Davis about her sophomore novel, The Address, in our archives at historyauthor.com or wherever you're listening. And that'll help you get to know the Dakota, too. In her novels, Fiona Davis breathes new life into these landmarks. And like the stories she weaves, her own life is one of broad experience, with twists and turns along the way. Born in Canada and then raised in places as far-flung as Utah, Texas, and New Jersey, she worked for years as a Broadway actress and attended both the College of William & Mary and the Columbia University School of Journalism. And if you want to learn more about her and her novels, you don't even have to buy a train ticket. Visit her at FionaDavis.net or find her at Fiona J. Davis on Twitter. Okay, 
Now that we've walked down that red carpet to the 20th Century Limited, let's join Fiona Davis at Grand Central and visit the masterpiece. I'm joined on the line by Fiona Davis, author of The Masterpiece, a novel. Fiona, welcome back, and thank you for another great time travel adventure. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Fiona, your books are really fun for me. Of course, I love New York City. I love visiting different eras. But The Masterpiece not only swept me away as a story, but I was pleased to find no drop-off in quality. I didn't feel like I was reading it and you were taking any shortcuts along the way, that there were any two-dimensional placeholder characters, that you still put work into the secondary and third-level characters. Since the novel revolves around art, I'll use one of my favorite writing metaphors, and that's that you can't see any of those stray pencil sketch lines that a painter will use when they draw the picture first with a pencil, and then they'll paint it in. And, you know, if they're not that great or they're rushed, or if you did a paint-by-numbers when you were a kid, you remember you sometimes still see the lines and the numbers. Your writing has none of those. It's really tight, and it held me the whole way through. I've given up trying my usual method of stopping three-quarters of the way so I don't risk giving away the end, because <laughs> it just keeps me going. I want to know what happens. So take us inside your process. How do you manage to promote one book? while writing and researching the next to maintain this pace of three books in two years? Uh, what you are so kind, first, I have to say. And second of all, I love your analogy. <laughs> it's so perfect. <laughs> this is what I do. I do it full time. I usually tend to spend my mornings working on a book, either editing or writing a first draft or researching, depending on what phase I'm in. And then the afternoon, I'll devote to publicity and answering emails and that kind of thing. And I think for me, part of it is that as I start doing the research, I get a sense of what the story could be. And then it's almost like the tsunami to see if I can pull it off. And I don't want to lose momentum. And so I just put in the hours and I go through probably around nine drafts per book. And it's really a matter of just making the story as sharp as possible and going back and fine-tuning. And it's never enough. But, you know, for me, it's just to see if I can pull it off. And I think that's what gets me down the road and gets me down the road fast. Your discipline is impressive, and it comes across in the book. And so I like to talk to you about it as an author, because people may not realize that, what it takes to keep on track, no pun intended, since we're talking about Grand Central <laughs> Terminal, which is a character in the masterpiece, the station. People say a building is a character, and if you're at all confused, come and read the masterpiece, and you'll see what that means to have a, a place be a character in a book. But it does require discipline to avoid getting sucked into endless months of research, and sometimes an author will go years, and they'll just They'll be traveling there over and over, and they'll wait for that. They'll wait for that inspiration that you called that tsunami to strike them. So, 
How did you go about tackling not only the golden youth of Grand Central Terminal, but you also have to dig into that historic preservation effort of the Jackie Kennedy Onassis years without going into that loop, going to the New York Times time machine and just reading over and over <laughs> the archive articles. You could have spent two years in this and it would have been time well spent. You would have enjoyed it. But instead, you have that discipline, which is that word again. How do you discipline yourself to keep to that schedule? Um, you know, I, I love the New York Times machine, by the way. Yes, I could, <laughs> I could spend hours there. You know, for this book, I knew I wanted to do two timelines again. And I, I knew I didn't want to do a timeline that I'd done before in another book. And that helped because by focusing it on, on the 1920s and then 1970s, I had to narrow my focus. So there were so many good ideas about Grand Central. There was a radio program that was recorded there. There was a TV news studio there in the 60s. There were so many options. But because I had to narrow it down to a decade I hadn't worked on before, that made it easier. And, and so I had to kind of stop getting sucked down the rabbit hole of, oh, well, what about you know the TV studio? Maybe that would be a good setting and really focus in on this art school that was there. And that helped. And, you know, I think also there's this point I reach as I'm doing research where at first it's just sheer panic. And I can't imagine being able to fill my head with everything that I need to know to write a book. But then you just hit this point where the research kind of just gets embedded in my head and I start to feel, okay, I I know this now. And once I feel that, it's okay for me to start outlining and figuring out who the characters are. And I just have to wait for that feeling to hit. And then I know it's time. And at that point, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to figure out who the characters are and what is the plot. I think a lot of the discipline helps that I studied piano as a kid and I practiced a half hour every day for, you know, eight or nine years. Hmm. And... So you can see how far you can get with just a, with a little effort every day. And that's the way I think I approach it. It's the way most things are, I think. And you can see that in here. I can see the mark of the chisel in the marble of you doing it. You can see where everything <laughs> you're, well, wait a minute. She spent a, she spent a minute on this line. Most of us aren't. I'm sure some of them are just naturally your talent, but some of me say, wow, she's really, she worked on that. It would have been so easy to, to, take a shortcut. As I said, I don't, I don't read anything here where he feels like you just glossed over anything. And you also are knowledgeable on two eras. And as I was reading over my questions in preparation for our chat, which yes, is in the afternoon. So you're keeping your promotion schedule right there. I can testify to, but <laughs> you, you, I realized I asked a lot about the twenties at first. And I said, I, I didn't talk so much about the seventies. And I thought, that's a great question to ask you. Do you find when you do these dual timelines, and as you mentioned, you try to go to ones you haven't touched upon before, do you have ones where you say, gosh, I really want to get back to the 20s, just just as a reader, just as a researcher, you want to go back to that and, and look around, and maybe the 70s not so much, or vice versa. How do you manage to be a professional writer and not just a spectator when you're trying to decide how much you need of one or the other time period? The story tends to tell me how much I need. I, I think with the masterpiece, it's more in the 20s and a little less in the 70s. Um, and the same with the address, the book before that. I think there was more focus on the historical time period. For me, I think it's just a matter of seeing where the story goes and 
what character needs more of a voice at whatever particular time. I don't make any rules beforehand, but it just tends to work out that way that, you know, I, I spend as much time as I really need to in each one. But it's so much fun because you never get bored. And the minute one timeline's kind of driving me nuts, I'm suddenly back in the other one. That's handy. And, and so it clears your head and you're ready to look at it in a different perspective if you need to. It's almost like writing two books at once or like your plan of going in, doing some research and some promotion and then some writing. You can always switch your brain. So you're always moving forward, even if it's not on the same timeline. Perfectly put. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you. Gosh. <laughs> when we chatted about the address, I pointed out your careful choice of character names. Our point of view characters in the 1970s of the masterpiece is the recently divorced Virginia Clay. What did you hope her name would tell readers? Where did it come from? Well, you know, she's a character who's kind of stuck. She's having a tough time. She's divorced. She has to take a job in the information booth at Grand Central, and she's used to being more of an Upper East Side lady who lunches. And so for me, you know, she describes her name as sounding like some kind of quarry stone. <laughs> and I think that's it. She's kind of stuck. She, the clay is weighing her down. And she feels like she's Virginia Clay, this something that you could find in a quarry. I don't know. That just made me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> you like the name. Just liked it. Yeah. And your character in the 20s is Clara Darden, and no quarry there. No, she's not uh, somebody who you'd think of as being mushed around like Clay either. She's a tough woman and illustrator. She's struggling in a male-dominated world, the world of art, but also against the dismissive attitude that I felt really as a reader I could relate to today, where people are casually dismissive of commercial advertisements, of somebody who does something like an ad or marketing, even though we really don't think about it and we all react to it. And when it's done well, we don't even know we're being persuaded in an ad, but they're an art form all their own. So what woman in the past or what women in the past inspired her character for you? Yeah, you know, as I was doing my research, I interviewed a, a wonderful architectural historian, and he pointed me in the direction of a former faculty member of the Grand Central School of Art who actually existed, named Helen Dryden. And I researched her and just was drawn in. She was a fabulous illustrator. She did a lot of Vogue covers. She ended up doing industrial design. She did Broadway costumes. And she was named in the 1930s the highest paid female artist in America. Hmm. And then she disappears. And her story is a very interesting one. And I, I took that as inspiration. It's, it's, it's inspired by her, but not. it doesn't stay exactly true to what happened to her. But, you know, she was a woman who, when, when she was working, she would go out and explore and she wasn't afraid. And she asked for what she wanted and demanded it. And I just thought that's, that's who I want my character to be. She's something else, too. You really want to follow her and find out what happens to her. And you're rooting for her because she's a sympathetic person and she's a person yet who has flaws, who has weaknesses. I guess you, you'd say flaws, but I, I really mean just that she has a tough upbringing. She comes to New York. It's a story that's as old as the city, I guess. The first Dutch person who came off the boat there and, you know, <laughs> found the Lenny Lenape or found the Carnegie Indians and was saying, well, hey, wait a minute, I'm just going to crash on somebody's couch maybe for a while and <laughs> I could find my way up. I mean, Broadway was there then. It wasn't paved, but it was a it was a route for the Canarsie and, and other native tribes. So it seems like it's a, a very old story where 
where people are just drawn to this one place on planet Earth. And that happens here in the masterpiece for Virginia Clay, where even though she's in the city, she's not of the city. She's certainly not on the ground level there at Grand Central Terminal. And then it also happens for Clara Darden, who comes all the way from the southwest of the United States to make her way there. And so you root for them on many different levels. You're interested in them on many different levels. And then you have your wonderful writing, your things that you bury in there for people who love history. And I noticed, for instance, as in the address where you debunked the myth that the Dakota is named that because it's so far north, which is not the case. It just was somebody's theme. They were going for a Western theme up there, which you can hear in our interview about the address, the full story. Here in the masterpiece, you perform a similar service with the name of Grand Central Terminal. That's very significant to those of us who care about old New York and getting things right and maybe being a little bit stuffy, I'm not too proud to admit, saying that it's Grand Central (laughs) Terminal, not Station. And I think you said that in our first chat, and I I praised you for it, and I said, oh, cool. Now now I know you're you're talking to a history nerd when they get that exactly right. So what does that distinction mean to people who love this 42nd Street landmark? such as your characters in the famed information booth on the concourse? And how did you figure out how you were going to get that in there with them and develop their characters right off the bat, those people in the information booth? Right. So the people, exactly, the people in the information booth in my book are the ones who know everything and can rattle off a schedule without having to look at anything. And they really are the experts and the unheralded experts of the terminal. And yeah, as I did my research and learned that it's, Grand Central Terminal and not station because the trains end there. They don't stop there on the way to somewhere else. It's an ending. It's a terminal. I just felt like I was in a private club of cool people who know, like you said, <laughs> geeky things. And and so it was fun to bring that into the book. And it's very hard not to correct people when they say it. I have to stop myself from doing it too much. I love those kind of secrets. And I love those kind of little tidbits that you don't know until you read it in a story. And because it's in a story where you care about the characters and you're, you're watching things unfold, suddenly it becomes just as important to you as it does to the people who work at Grand Central. And, and it's just such a joy to bring those little nuggets out into life. And it reminds you when you're reading it that there are real people like these people in your book, like the characters that work in that information booth in the center of the concourse. We've all seen that clock. We've seen it in a million movies, even if not in person. And you think there are people all walking. And I saw recently a documentary on Grand Central Terminal, and they talked about how all of those people racing and somebody came from another country. I think it was South Korea. And it was a mother and her daughter. And she said to her daughter, someday you're going to be one of these people. And they're all running through and nobody's hitting each other, which is why you can have those great time-lapse video and people just going through like a big water rushing around them. And then in the middle, almost like an island in your mind's eye is uninhabited because you're seeing humanity all around it. You forget that there are people in there. So what a great thing to do. What a great Easter egg to crack open for your readers here and show us what was going on inside there for all those years when we've just been rushing by reading our newspaper or nowadays on our phone or what have you. You really were able to go inside there. So how did you do that? How did you go about researching it? What was it when you first decide you're going to write a book, you're going to write it about and around 
Grand Central Depot. Oops, sorry, that's the even older name. That's the Gilded Age name. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so I'm, show, I'm showing my age there, I guess you might say, even though I'm not that old. But when you're writing the masterpiece, how do you first say, I'm going to write about Grand Central Terminal? So now I'm going to go and maybe stand there, like the character here on the cover of your book, standing up there above it and look at it now with your writer's eye. Put on your writer's hat and go and decide where you're going to focus that everybody's missing that's hiding in plain sight. You know, I definitely go to the terminal and stand there and watch things happen. But I find a lot of information in old books. There's this wonderful book called Grand Central by David Marshall that, for example, had a whole chapter on the information booth and the people there. And it was written a long time ago, I think maybe the 50s or 60s. But it was just so full of all the the numbers of how many questions they get a day and what their typical questions are and what are the more ridiculous ones as well as really great background into all the little things that are in that terminal. So for me, it's really going to older references to see how people have have viewed it over time and how it's changed over time. That's half the fun. I love that part of the process. And there was a Grand Central Depot before this Grand Central Terminal. I don't want to get any of my fellow train lovers and Grand Central lovers mad at me, but that was built by Vanderbilt, which is why the Vanderbilt is right there. You'll see the street name if you visit it. That opened in 1871, and then they slowly demolished it from 1903 to 1913. So I'm sure if we could go back 100 years, there would be people saying, I don't like this new terminal. The old one was better. (laughs) And it was, in fact, a beautiful building. You could still find pictures of it on there with the big towers. They look like rooks of of a castle almost. So even though we kept this one, I'm sure that had they succeeded in replacing it in the 70s, which is a subplot in the masterpiece, it would not have been it would not have been any kind of improvement. It wouldn't have been able to stand on par what they wanted to do back then. They really wanted to just wreck it. They didn't want to they didn't want to have another beautiful building there. They they really were going to tear it down. And it's fortunate. It's scary to me that we look back and say, gosh, we could have lost this gem forever. Yeah. And, and because we did lose Penn Station the decade earlier, I think people were more aware of, wait a minute, I think people regretted not fighting more to to preserve Penn Station. And yeah, what they were going to do to Grand Central was to submerge it underground, just like they did with Penn Station now. So it would just be underneath a huge skyscraper and all the grandeur would be would have been completely lost. They wouldn't have even kept the facade, which is something they did to the Hearst building. They built that very glass, glass diamonds goes through it on the corner of, I guess it's 57th and I want to say, is it 8th? Okay, 8th. So 57th and 8th. So they put that there and stuck it. So if you just shield your eyes and don't look up too high, you could see it right there. (laughs) But it's, uh, at least they kept some of it. At least they tried. But in this case, it would have been total obliteration. And what a great thing to have running throughout the masterpiece where even though we know it's preserved, it's a great thing to watch characters in the moment who don't know they're going to succeed fight for it. And people like this quirky characters in the information booth who it means so much to them. And they really have nowhere else to go if they're thrown out of there. It's a special place for them. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the benefits of writing about these real places, these special places, the Barbizon Hotel in the Dollhouse and the Dakota in the Address and now Grand Central in the Masterpiece is your readers can visit all of these places. They have been preserved. One spot in the terminal that features prominently as a plot device is the Whispering Gallery in Grand Central Terminal. 
Was that a moment of excitement to realize you could use that to propel the story? Or did you long have an idea of, wow, this would be a cool thing to use those unique acoustics to help you eavesdrop and help you drive your story forward? That's a great question. You know, I I hadn't considered it. I knew I would mention it in passing in the book, but I hadn't considered it as a, a really important scene in the book taking place there. And like most of the ideas that come to me, it's usually when I go for a run, I live near the Hudson River here in New York, and I'll usually go for runs. And there's something about being near water, and I've read this somewhere else, that the ions help you come up with good ideas. And I swear it's true because there's not a any time that I go for a run and I'm thinking of something or there's a scene that has a problem and the answer comes to me. And when it came to me as to how to pull that off, I was so excited. I couldn't wait to... <laughs> get to that scene and write it because it it was everything coming together. It was the plot and the location really working together to propel the story forward. And that's the best feeling in the world. It's a gorgeous moment. And I don't want to tease people too much being a jerk, but yeah, you read the book and it's just, it's just great that that comes. And if you don't know it, it's a real spot you can go. You can also go to the old house building. There's a very similar spot there. John Quincy Adams, you can see where his desk was. And they were all able to hear somebody that was clear across the room. So you can imagine if you're trying to keep a secret, right? That's it, a good place for John Quincy Adams to be able to hear what you were saying. So that was very cool. I enjoyed it so much. And I'm glad. That's just what I wanted to hear, that it hit you like a lightning strike. And you said, wow, I can use this. That's much better than you planning the book around it, I think. Because I want you as an author, since you're giving us fun, I want you to to be having fun writing the thing. Oh, absolutely. I, I have a great time. I mean, it's, <laughs> there, there are days that are painful, but in general, I'm, I enjoy every minute. We're speaking with Fiona Davis, author of The Masterpiece, a novel. Visit her online at fionadavis.net or follow her at Fiona J. Davis on Twitter, where I can tell you she's active on there and we share a lot of great pictures of old New York and stories and promotions for the book back and forth. Pam Jenoff, New York Times best-selling author of The Orphan's Tale, writes of our guest, quote, with her two previous novels, The Address and The Dollhouse, Fiona Davis established herself as the master of plumbing the depths of New York's landmarks for the secrets that lie beneath. Now in the masterpiece, Davis turns her talents to Grand Central Terminal with a powerful dual narrative about an artist who taught at the prestigious art school in the station in the 20s, and a single mother working at Grand Central in the 1970s, who discovers the remains of the art school. Fiona, pick up your pipe wrench and talk about your plumbing skills, to borrow Pam Jenoff's verb. In the masterpiece, your MacGuffin is a watercolor painting. What is it about that moment of discovery, whether it's a painting, someone's diary, or another artifact, that inspires you as an author? In your wide travels, you've lived many places growing up. And so I was wondering, did you get inspired on all this? Because one day you moved into a new house and you tore open a wall or looked under a bed and found an old box or something, and you found something mysterious inside it. What was it that starts you on this trend to that moment of discovery? Yeah, it's a great question. It definitely had to do with traveling around a lot, but it wasn't that I ever found a treasure in a basement or anything like that. When I was a kid, we moved around a lot, and I always had this kind of jewel box thing. 
and in it, I, I kept all my, you know, the most important things. And so there was some rose water cologne that my dad, like this tiny little thing of it that my dad brought back to me from Cologne, Germany when he was there. Or I, I had a dollar bill that I folded up into a tiny square and put into a smaller little box, <laughs> like the most random, odd things. And that was kind of my treasure. And that came with me wherever we moved. And so I think having something like that, you know, a talisman was just became important. And my characters are often unmoored. They're, you know, they're, they're uprooted. Their lives have changed and they're not quite sure where they belong. And so finding something like that, that makes them feel grounded is very similar to this silly little jewelry box that I carried with me from state to state. Was that an inspiration that you had consciously or did you think back on it later when you realized you thought of the plot idea and thought, oh, right, there's that box. You just felt it keep coming and popping into your mind. No, you know what? I didn't think of this until I got your question. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. It's not something I even thought about. But the minute you said that, the image of that box and the smell of the clone came right back. Wow. <laughs> and, and so I think that was my treasure. And someday if someone found it, they'd wonder. They'd wonder all about you. Fortunately, they'd be able to go and find books. It'd be pretty easy to find out who you were, I guess, <laughs> if your name was in there. But yeah, there's always those moments. I read those stories sometimes in the paper and you find that somebody knocked down a wall, which I did recently in my own house to redo my kitchen. And they find Broadway posters, which was a great one. You know, those are worth a lot of money now. Or they'll find a yes. box of money or they'll find some amazing thing. And whenever I get them, I'll send them to my real estate agent who I've been friends with now. <laughs> for a dozen years and I'll say, Miriam, why why couldn't you sell me a house with this? This one they found, you know, they found gold bullion in the wall. How can you the only thing I ever find is maybe some dead crickets. How, why? Where <laughs> <laughs> why don't exactly. you tell me, yeah. Although I did find a soffit that the man who originally built the house that I live in now finished it. He was the, did all the finishing work and he signed it there and the kitchen, since it was still from the 1950s, had never been touched. And so I really liked it as somebody who liked to work with my hands myself, be it writing or swinging a hammer to knock down a wall or doing woodworking. I appreciated that here's this message from 70 years ago that this guy took pride in his work enough that he signed the inside of the soffit. So those kinds of things are just great. And I think when you find something like that, what a human thing it is to just question it and to say, well, what happened? Who, who left this penny here that's inside this wall? You know, who who dropped this carton of milk or whatever it happens to be that you find inside a wall? And it's so exciting to go on this ride in the masterpiece because this woman is very low, Virginia Clay. She's feeling down. She has a great character detail that makes her even more sympathetic and flawed and you root for her even more. And she just finds a painting and she's inspired by it like any of us would be. She's not a big art critic or a big art enthusiast, but here she is at the very lowest. And that's something like that little box you mentioned that she latches onto and then it just rockets her in all these unexpected directions. It's really wonderful to go on that ride with somebody. It is wonderful. And I'm I'm insisting that you sign your soffit once you've done renovating your kitchen. <laughs> yeah, I'll slip it in there. And I suppose people, maybe if they Google, if we still have Google, and uh, I don't know that it'll last another 70 years, my work, but that's a good idea. I'll do that. <laughs> Let them know who I was, see if they can Google my name. Maybe I'll misspell my name on purpose, which everybody does all the time anyway. Might as well. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, it's the part of the show where I like to ask the author of a novel to read a short passage they've selected. As with dialogue itself and those hundred ways you can walk in a room and greet the people there, it tells you something about the character. And in the same way, what the author chooses to read tells us something not just about the book, but also about the author themselves. So set this up for us and have at it. Sure. So this is in the um, 1920s section of the book. It's very early in the story. And Clara, who is a faculty member of the Grand Central School of Art, um, has just had a, a very difficult class that she's taught. And um, she's just heading um, down to grab a bite. Clara headed downstairs to the main concourse, where cocoa pink walls trimmed in Botticino marble soared into the air. Electrically lit stars and painted constellations twinkled along the turquoise vaulted ceiling. Although the poor artist had inadvertently painted the sky backward, a mistake the art students loved to remark upon. The first time she'd entered the hallowed space, stepping off the train from Arizona last September, she'd stopped and stared, her mouth open, until a man brushed past her, swearing under his breath at her inertia. The vastness of the main concourse where sunshine beamed through the giant windows and bronze chandeliers glowed, left her gobsmacked. With its exhilarating mix of light, air, and movement, the terminal was the perfect location for a school of art. Since then, she'd be sure to glance up quickly before joining in what seemed like an elaborate square dance of men and maids, of red-capped porters and well-dressed society ladies, all gliding by one another at various angles, yet never colliding. She liked best to lean over the banister on the west balcony and watch the patterns of people flowing around the circular information booth, which sat in the middle of the floor, its four-faced clock tipped with a gleaming gold acorn. That's the moment that's on the cover of the book with her standing there on that western balcony looking out at it. That's the first thing that I think listening to you read it. Then I can, I'm glancing over because I always keep the book nearby if I can. So... Is that something you had input into the design of the book cover, or does Dutton, your publisher, do that for you? You know, I told them I imagined a woman in a blue dress in the terminal somehow, and they created this. I mean, I'm, I'm blown away. Christopher Lynn is the designer who did it, and he's just terrific. It's absolutely right and perfect, and they nailed it. The Dollhouse and the Address also have very striking covers, very unique, which is hard to do because I see a million books, so as you can imagine. So ones that jump out at me, ones that invite me into the story, that's an art in and of itself. And as I was mentioning before about your character, Clara Darden, it's easy just to dismiss book covers. They figure, well, people are just trying to capture your dime, and it's not really something that we put up on a wall and say, let's look at them. And you and I may, because we're of a writing mind, you see the paperback, for instance, of the address comes out, and I wanted to see that because I wanted to see how it was different, or you posted the covers in different countries a couple of times on your Facebook page, and that's exciting for us, but <laughs> it really is a talent to capture it because sometimes you do read a book and you say, this cover has nothing to do with it almost. You say, this doesn't this doesn't tell me what it's about, but this does absolutely that, and I, I really enjoyed it. And it's great that that's the passage that you chose there that people can see and get into the book just by looking there, by joining her, standing behind this woman who's on the balcony, looking out over Grand Central and looking at what we now know is that iconic information booth that we're going to learn about inside. <laughs> exactly. Yes, exactly. When working with dual timelines, you sometimes have to give the end of a chapter, but never the end of the story. 
for example, readers will know that the Great Depression is coming and that Clara Darden's cast of artists will be impacted somehow. Their lives are going to come to an end. This big party that is the Roaring Twenties, someone's going to flash on the lights and tell them <laughs> that the bar's closed, right? You got to all go home, get out of here. So how do you decide the right touch of the brush on the canvas in those moments so readers stay invested and you never give away too much of the fate of the old timeline? It's tricky, and it really is about plotting and getting the plot right. And I do that before I start writing. And so I know where each story is going to go. And it's a matter of interweaving the scenes so that, exactly, so that the reader's attention doesn't flag and that you're left at the end of each scene with a question that's unanswered and you want to know more. And it was tricky because there is a, a huge, you know, when, when, the, when the depression hits, they are affected and there's a lot that goes on that feels like an ending. My hope is that just by the way I've placed those chapters within the 1970s chapters, the whole thing has momentum and keeps on moving forward. Even if you feel like, okay, this is a big finish. The book's not done yet. There's more to come. And so hopefully readers, you know, power through. And also I think because in the 1970s, you're you're wondering how they saved the terminal and, and how, did it, how did that all work out, that that keeps you moving forward as well until the two timelines braid together in a way. And I want to compliment you because you avoid the temptation to use all kinds of corny things like keep chugging along and you just say momentum. You didn't mention anything about trains, but that's what I'm picturing. I'm <laughs> saying, you know, the plot really just keeps chugging along, gets to that hill and you just pour on the coal and it just keeps going to get us to Chicago there in that 20th century limited. So I can be as corny as I want. I don't have to stop. I just, but I love it. And keep in mind, once I've done, you know, a hundred author talks on the subject, I may be just doing it like crazy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's good. I like to get you early. So this way, you have, I'm not asking you the same questions you've been asked a million times, which is something I consciously try to avoid. I, I like to ask new and different questions for people. So that's the important thing that you want to keep that momentum going. Just like with new questions, you want your readers to be asking new questions. You don't want them to say, okay, I obviously know what's going to happen next. If there's a love story, you don't want them to just assume they're going to get together because there are books that you won't go back to. And you want to not know who she's going to be friends with as a character and who she's going to be enemies with, who's going to betray, who's going to be the good person to help her along the way. Those are always great things with the characters in your book. And there's one observation that Clara Darden makes that I wanted to ask you about. She observes of a fellow teacher at the art school a line that jumped out at me. I wrote it, and this was my first sitting with the book, and I, I made sure to make a note of it. She says, this was no painting class. It was a cult. How did your experience in your life help you flesh out this insular world of artists in the 1920s? What brought that to mind? Because that really jumped out at me, the idea of describing the class as a cult. Yeah, you know, I it was from research. So I read a lot of biographies on artists like Arshel Gorky, Jackson Pollock, Lee Krasner, and especially Lee Krasner's biography of seeing the art world's eyes through a female painter was very fascinating and how a lot of these men had huge personalities, as does that particular teacher in the book. It's the cult of personality. For me, that helped show Clara as an outsider, not only as a newcomer to New York, but as a female in the very male-dominated world of art. 
and it was it was fun to portray. There's uh, I was very inspired by Arshel Gorky, who was a big man and an incredible life force, and had an amazing life. And the character of Levon in the book is inspired by him, although again not completely aligned um, with his life. His life, if if you wrote that in a book, you wouldn't believe it because so many incredible things hmm. happened to him, both wonderful and tragic. And so, yeah, it was it was really fun. Another thing I did as I was working on the idea of the book was I took one of Helen Dryden, the actual illustrator, one of her Vogue covers and tried to recreate it with watercolors the way she had. And that was great. Just to understand what it's like to paint with watercolor and to it was pretty close, I have to say. I was pretty impressed with myself. I could never do it again. But it was so much fun to try and use these techniques that you had to, to get the right wash and to make it look like one of these beautiful Vogue covers with these women with these long necks and all curves. And so for me, that was, that was a lot of fun to play around with, having come into it with not a whole lot of art education behind me. It was a real learning curve. And you have a moment in the book, a detail that I'm going to ask if came from your experience of struggling with the watercolors. You're talking about someone trying to replicate her work and trying to sit in on one of her classes who doubts her skills. And you talk about the using the watercolors that if you don't wait for it to dry, if you're not patient, it'll just all blur and you'll get a big blob. And did that come from your actual experience? Come clean. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And with watercolors, there's no going back. If, mm. You know, if you've made something, you can make something darker, but you can't make it lighter. And so, you know, if you've made a mistake and used too much or too little, that's it. And yeah, if you put one color next to another before one color is already dried, it creates a cauliflower, they call it. Mm. And it does. It looks like this kind of funny blooming cauliflower. Right. So no nine drafts of a watercolor. You either get it right the first time like the Torah yes. or you're, you're done. You got to start all over. <laughs> That's exactly. it. Exactly. You take us as readers on tours of many hidden and lost places in Grand Central. You do this throughout the masterpiece in a way that made me wonder how much, if any, of the off-limits terminal were you able to get access to? Do you go in there and say, hey, I'm writing a novel. Can I get in? Is there an official historian? And if there's one place you would have loved to visit, but it doesn't exist anymore, what would that place be? Oh, great question. Yeah. You know, so the idea for using Grand Central came from a reader who was at one of my book talks. And she said, I can get you a backstage, you know, behind the scenes tour of Grand Central. And I thought, oh, sure. You know, I figured I probably wouldn't use it because I'd been used to using places where people lived and Grand Central was not that. But I went on this tour and it was an incredible tour from all the way, you know, below the Waldorf where there's these tracks where Roosevelt's train apparently just sits there and it's, it's just falling apart. But, um, you know, you have to climb downstairs to get to it and down ladders and it's, these very dark, dirty tracks, and then up to the catwalk um, that's in between the arched windows and into a war room where they really run um, the terminal. So I got this amazing tour. The one place I did not get was the top floor on the east wing, which is where the art school originally existed. And that's closed off. It's a training room, I think, for the people who work for the terminal. 
And I would just love to get there and see what it looks like. So instead, I had to kind of make that up. That's too bad. You would have loved to be able to get in. Maybe you have to apply. Yeah, <laughs> get in I there. have to get a job there. <laughs> Go work in the information booth. That'd be yeah. great. And that was also great what you read there. Wonderful description of it. And I think people rushing through there is such an iconic image and such something that just amazes people. If you ever bring somebody there as a tourist, Clara's first moment standing there, and you have to shepherd them off to the side like a border collie, keep them <laughs> keep them out of the main concourse because you'll get run over if you stop. It's such a wonderful moment. There's moments for people that don't live here and have never been here to Grand Central, as I said, but there's also many of those moments that you can relate to. And maybe you have a little sympathy for that person standing there looking around in the whispering gallery who doesn't know where the heck they're going and can't find their way to where the, <laughs> where the actual trains are because it's not that obvious to people. They are rolling out the red carpet for us to board the 20th Century Limited. So let's wrap up our chat where we began with questions about your prolific writing. Three novels in two years. Earlier, you said that this amazing story of this real-life painter, people wouldn't believe if you wrote it in a book. Well, I'm sure you could make it believable. I would believe anything that you write in a book now because it's so good and so grounded in fact. So tell us, will you keep up this pace? And if so, where and when can readers expect to time travel with you next? Oh, you are so kind. Um, yeah, the, I'm working hard at work on the next book, which will be out next August. And it, um, it takes place at the Chelsea Hotel, dun, 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 oh, wow. um, which has, yeah, quite a history there. And, you know, in, in each book, I seem to have tackled an art form. So for the first one, it was bebop jazz. The second one, it was architecture. Grand Central, it's fine art. And for this one, I'm going into a world I love, which is theater. So it's two actresses who meet on a USO tour in World War II, come back to New York and have to deal with some interesting things going on, including the McCarthy era. It's very interesting to dive into, and I'm enjoying myself immensely. Well, Fiona Davis, thank you. Such an inside look I, I never could have hoped for, but I'm looking forward now to next year. And even though you do write the books fast, they never come fast enough for those of us who have become your admiring readers. The masterpiece was great. I envy everybody who's listening who hasn't had a chance to read it yet. One thing about getting an advanced copy is it always seems then to take longer to get the next one, although I know it's not the case. I know you'll send it to me as soon as you have it. I'm not going to get one of those early drafts, but it's worth waiting for the final one. And it's worth all of you picking up this book to read at the beach this summer. Thank you so much for taking us inside this remarkable train terminal in the heart of Manhattan. While reading it, it really was frightening to think that we might have lost this landmark in the name of progress. Best of luck with the book. And although you certainly deserve rest, I selfishly hope that you keep up your schedule of writing every day. Get back out there to the Hudson water, soak up those ions, <laughs> walk along the riverbank, and keep cranking out wonderful stories of the city that never sleeps. Whether it's the masterpiece, the dollhouse, or the address, you'll not be disappointed if you take a trip with Fiona Davis. Thank you so much. And thank you for everything you do to connect readers and authors and history lovers. You do so much, and it's very much appreciated. Well, it's my pleasure. I love to share great books with people, and you certainly meet the criteria. <laughs> Again, the book is The Masterpiece, a novel. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. 
and we hope you will click through there. Or even navigate using the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, that banner takes you through to Amazon, and Amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra clicks, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like the engine of the old 20th Century Limited. My thanks to Fiona Davis for joining us a second time and for taking us on this intriguing bookending journey back to Gotham in the 1920s and 70s. You can enjoy our previous interview on her novel, The Address, in our archives at historyauthor.com or wherever you're listening now. Visit our guest at fionadavis.net and follow her at Fiona J. Davis on Twitter. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean or Facebook.com slash HistoryAuthor. And you can follow the show's page on Instagram, where I like to share my own images of New York's ghosts and books like today's novel, The Masterpiece. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guy.